0: This is Studio 809. Welcome to Town Square, the podcast that shines a little light on important things happening in Colorado Springs and the Pikes Peak region.
1: Well, welcome everybody to House District 17 and our town hall with my uh, cohorts, uh, Senator Pete Lee and, and Representative Mark Snyder from House District 18. We are so glad you're here at the Southeast YMCA, we appreciate the YMCA for allowing us to use this venue. And to kick it off, uh, we've got a guest, special guest, uh, County Commissioner Longinus, and he's going to uh, share a few words with us about what's going on in his world.
2: Uh, thank you, Tony. So uh, I'm Lowhinos Gonzalez. I'm County Commissioner District Four. So this is not my meeting, but uh, I did want to welcome everybody because this is the County Commissioner District Four area, and I live just down the street, about a mile away. Uh, one of the things I think everybody's united on uh, when we talk about the southeast part of Colorado Springs is redevelopment and renewal of this area, and making sure that our community uh, is united, and making sure that the whole, uh, you know, the county and the city uh, has a strong economic growth, and that we make sure that we take care of our community and our children. Uh, So one of the things I continue to work uh, with, and Yolanda Avila from City Council and others here, is uh, uh, revitalization of this area. I believe uh, uh, Senator Lee uh, helped get us some funds uh, a year and a half ago for this area, which we appreciate, uh, and uh, we want to continue to do that. Uh, I always encourage everybody to contact City Council and uh, the mayor, help them to put projects in the southeast, because this is an area that occasionally gets... uh, Uh, does get overlooked on occasion, uh, and and I think uh, we need to get that uh, word back to help us build and strengthen this area of the city uh, the other thing from the state level uh, that I see I think the county is doing pretty good uh, we will continue to push for uh, uh, roads infrastructure public safety a lot of the uh, core functions functions that I think we need to emphasize uh, and I think the community is supportive of uh, and then just the last thing uh, I do ask the uh, state legislature uh, that as bills come forward uh, next year in the next several years uh, that they always take into consideration whether or not that pushes costs down to the cities or the counties so unfunded mandates are something that are difficult uh if they are pushed down to the county level uh that does one of two things sometimes that uh Uh, affects our TABOR limits uh, and pushes us up on CAPS. The other thing is sometimes those costs uh, get funded by the counties and the cities, uh, and that means we have a little less money to fund other projects, whether they be roads, uh, infrastructure, or public safety. Uh, And so I just ask that the state legislature and the governor be very conscious of uh, not pushing unfunded mandates to us. But I appreciate everybody coming out, and uh, I hope everybody has really good questions for our uh, local representatives, uh, because we are here for you. Thanks.
1: Yes. Thanks, it. Thanks, Commissioner Gonzalez, for your time and for your, for your work here in, in, uh, in District 4 in Southeast Caro Springs. I'm going to kick it off here. Our, our Secretary of State is running a little late, uh, so you get a chance to hear from, from us first. And uh, when she gets here, uh, we're going to cut our comments off and give her the floor. And then we'll come back and, and wrap up. Uh, just a, a few highlights about the uh, uh, about the last session: uh, bipartisan, uh, thirty-two billion dollar budget delivered to all current to prioritize investments in education, transportation, mental and behavioral health. Here's just a couple of highlights: We invested one hundred eighty-five million uh, to implement full-day kindergarten in Colorado. You know, what the full day kindergarten is great. But what it also does is that it opens up uh, several seats for preschool. So we got a a double benefit from that Uh, 22 million for special education, 27 million for English language learners program. We increased K-12 funding uh, by 357 per student uh, on an average of a total of 69, uh, 69. 6951. Higher education. 120 million, that's an increase of about 16%. We invested another 300 million in transportation. That was also increased from last year. Additional 10 million in general fund to implement the Colorado Water Plan. Colorado Water Plan is very important because we in Colorado uh, are responsible for the next generation. We cannot take clean water for granted. We need to make sure we have clean water for our kids and for our grandkids. Additional million to help expand critical family planning services. Uh, Equal pay for equal work, uh, Senate Bill 85, uh, Representative Buckner and uh, Gonzalez Gutierrez. This bill, uh, I don't know why it took so long to get there. Uh, A woman doing uh, what a man does, doing the same job that a man does, should be paid the same, period. Um, Apprenticeship programs of vocational education, Senate Bill 171, Representative Sullivan and and Galindo. Uh, Family uh, medical leave insurance program, that was Representative Gray and Duran. Over 90% of Coloradans don't have access to paid leave to care for sick loved ones and for a newborn. The bill creates an outline and implementation schedule that lays out the foundation for a strong, robust PAID FAMILY LEAVE POLICY FOR COLORADO WORKERS AND BUSINESSES BY 2024. Um, a CHILD CARE TAX EXPENSE CREDIT FOR LOW-INCOME FAMILIES. THAT WAS uh, MY BILL, uh, HOUSE BILL 1013. Uh, WE EXTEND uh, THAT TAX CREDIT FOR CHILD CARE EXPENSES THROUGH 2028. AND BASICALLY THE WAY THAT, the way that WORKS IS FOR LOW-INCOME FAMILIES, uh, INDIVIDUALS MAKING, MOSTLY SINGLE MOMS, MAKING $25,000 OR LESS PER YEAR um, they, they can claim up to $500 for one child, $1,000 for two or more children to help with child care expenses. So I've, I've been running that bill since, uh, since I got elected, and now it's extended through 2028. The average, uh, about 35,000 individuals took advantage of this child care tax credit, cost the state about $6 million, which I believe uh, that money that we're investing into single moms and single parents is going to come back uh, into the economy. Um, bills to lower uh, uh, health care costs, hospital transparency measure. Uh, this was House Bill Ten Zero Zero One, the first one out of the, out of the block, Representative Kennedy. The high cost of health care is harming Colorado consumers and businesses. This new law requires hospitals to report annually on uncompensated un- 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 costs and categorizes expenditures to help inform future policy decisions to get the root causes of rising health care costs. A couple others here. Oh, I like this one, reducing insulin costs. Uh, House Bill 1216, Representative Roberts. I talked to him about it the other day with uh, a friend of mine that uh, has type type 2 diabetes. Uh, this this bill requires insurance to reduce the cost of insulin drugs and their com- consumers to no more than $100 per month supply for insulin. Directs the Attorney General to investigate the pricing of prescription insulin drugs and report back to the legislative body about whether additional consumer protections are needed for over 420,000 Coloradans who have diabetes. And I'm going to turn it over to... Who's going to go next? Okay, I'm going to turn it over to my friend and my colleague, Senator Pete
3: Lee. Thank you. Thank you, Rep. Exum. So thank you all for coming out this morning. It's uh, really a great honor to have everyone show up. This is really uh, democracy as it ought to be. This is how it was envisioned, the uh, people speaking directly with their representatives. Um, so, along those lines, I'd like to introduce people who are considering or running for office um, in this great democracy. Ken Schauer is running for, and I'll let you say a word or two. What are you running for? And...
4: Hello, my name is Ken Schauer. I'm uh, president of the Colorado Springs Area Labor Council, treasurer of IBW Local 113, and vice president-at-large of the Colorado AFL-CIO. I'm a union electrician. I uh, work with my tools down in Fountain. Right now, working on a middle school. Um, yeah, we're putting together an exploratory committee to look for run for County Commissioner District 5. So um, we have an excellent chance of, of doing well in that seat, and I would like to give it a good run. So um, I'd appreciate your support, and I look forward to meeting each and every one of you. So thank you. And we also have with us Liz
3: Rosenbaum. I don't know if she's running or running again, but she has run. And actually, before I hand you the mic, I want to talk about a really superb bill that Liz was instrumental in getting to the legislature, sponsored by your own Representative Exum and myself, to eliminate PFAS, these um, foam firefighting, chlorine-based firefighting foam that has contaminated... The fountain water supply and um, i attribute the passage and success of that bill to a great extent to liz rosenbaum the former commissioner candidate <laughs> you got to come this way
5: so my name is liz rosenbaum and i'm running for house district 21 again um, i did pretty well the first time doing doing it so not only did i make some campaign promises, but I also followed through just as a regular citizen. So what we needed to do was ban this toxic firefighting foam from being used. And if it did absolutely have to be used, it is going to be treated as a toxic substance, which it is, and it has to be cleaned up accordingly instead of just leaching into our groundwater. There's a lot more that we still have to do with this house bill, but I would, on behalf of our community, I've got a little thank you notes for Representative Exum and Representative Snyder and Senator Lee. So when you need something done, these are your guys that you reach out to and they're gonna help you make sure that your community is thriving. Thank you.
3: The ever gracious Liz Rosenbaum. Any other candidates who are running for office, please step forward.
6: Good morning, my name is Jillian Freeland. I am running for Congress here in Colorado's 5th District. I serve on El Paso's Community Corrections Board and Board of Adjustment, as well as I am the Vice President of my Homeowners Association. I previously was a small business owner, I'm a trained midwife, and I'm running for Congress because it's time for people who have a healthcare background to write healthcare legislation.
3: Imagine that. Imagine that. What a thought.
6: I also will be the first woman to ever represent this district. Woo!
3: (laughs) Okay. Thanks. Anyone else considering taking the plunge into the political world? Okay, well, thanks. You always have a forum at our forum. We appreciate what you do. Um, Let me say at the outset that the legislative session just concluded was, in my humble opinion, one of the most successful, one of these most productive (laughs) in recent memory of many people. in this session, which was the first time in, I think, eight years when the Democrats controlled both the Senate 19 to 16 and the House 4124 and the governor's office. So we hit the trifecta in November and immediately went to work to pass legislation to benefit the people of Colorado. And during that period of time, 120 days, we heard Almost 600 bills, 598 bills, of which we passed 462, 95% with bipartisan support. Let me say that again, 95% of the bills got bipartisan support in the Colorado Assembly. The significance of that is when you compare it with with what goes on in Washington, which has raised dysfunctionality and incompetence to a high art form, I think you can be proud of what we do in the state of Colorado. We absolutely get the work done for the uh, people of the state. Um, We pass bills on a whole array of issues. Uh, Tony described a bunch in the healthcare area. Um, I focused a lot in the criminal justice area. I've been on the Judiciary Committee since I've been in the Colorado General Assembly. I chaired the House Judiciary Committee for two years and I was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee this year. uh, We passed, this is a rough estimate, probably 30 significant criminal justice reform bills. Um, I'll give you examples of, of just a couple of them. One of them, probably the most common sense bill we passed during the course of the legislative session was to provide people with a court text reminder of their court dates. So the judicial district will send out a text reminder to everyone on their smartphone, actually two of them, uh, ahead of their court date. The jails are full in every county in Colorado. There's over 1,600 people in the El Paso County Jail Bill Elder estimates that between 40 and 60 percent are there because of failure to appear for court dates. Half the people are there for failure to appear. People who fail to appear are, keep this in mind, innocent. They're charged. They're innocent until proven guilty. So by giving people a court text reminder, we're going to clear out potentially across the state some 5,000 people from the uh, local county jails. Think of the impact and the implications of that. When people get picked up, particularly on a failure to appear, they're probably driving to the grocery store, going to work, going to a soccer game, and they get picked up for some uh, violation. They check the warrants and they find out they've got a warrant out there. They take them to jail. And thus, they potentially can lose their job. They lose the capability of staying connected with their family. The implications of getting sent to jail for a short period of time are staggering. So that bill passed, uh, I've been working on it for three years, and we finally got it through. I will point out parenthetically that it died in the Republican-controlled Senate a year ago. It passed and was initiated in the Democratic-controlled Senate this year. Um, We also passed a bill to get rid of bail for low-level offenses what I call public nuisance offenses or even more poverty offenses if people get picked up for sleeping in the park that is a trespass violation that is a an offense for which you're brought to the jail and you have to pose bond well if you're homeless and lacking insufficient resources um, you're not going to be able to pay the bond so you spend time in jail so we eliminated the uh, requirement and the local jails now have to uh, send people out on personal recognizance, they're promised to return and they will do a risk assessment to determine if they're a, a risk of doing harm in the community or fleeing the jurisdiction, which is what bond is supposed to be. But what law enforcement typically does is they detain people in jails because they want to contain them. They view them as a risk. I don't view people sleeping in the park as a risk, so we have a lot fewer people that are going to be uh, going to jail. A significant bill which was railed against by our local sheriff was a bill to reduce felony drug possession to a misdemeanor. (laughs) We have been engaged in a war on drugs, I would say a failed war on drugs for 50 years. We send people to the Department of Corrections for felonies, Um, you don't send people to the Department of Corrections for misdemeanors. So by the mere fact of reclassifying drug possession as a misdemeanor, they are ineligible to go to the Department of Corrections. If anyone believes that the Department of Corrections is a good place to send drug addicts, you should take a visit to the Department of Corrections and evaluate their drug treatment programs. They don't have programs that help people get out of drugs. They have seven. Uh, they have alcohol anonymous programs, but they don't have good addiction programs. So by reclassifying and treating drug possession, just possession, as a public health problem as opposed to a criminal act, we're changing the trajectory of the criminal justice system with respect to this this war on drugs. Uh, so those are just a couple of the bills in the, in the criminal justice area. Oh, uh, ban the box. When people come out of the Department of Corrections, they uh, often on job applications have to check a box which says, have you been convicted of a felony? The result of those, for those applications is they oftentimes just get trashed so a bill that we passed this year prohibits the use of a preliminary screening question about felony convictions. Uh, That question can be asked after the initial interview. We did the exact same thing on college applications. Look, if we want to reduce recidivism rate, if we want to reintegrate people in the community, if we want to reduce the 20,000 people in the Department of Corrections and reduce this 50% recidivism rate, we need to provide people with opportunities to get housing and to get into the workforce. And by banning the box, we are taking a step in that direction to enable people coming out of prison to get employed. We spend, I, I work with this stuff so much, I forget that not everyone has all these facts at their fingertips but it costs in Colorado uh, $40,000 a year to keep one person in the Department of Corrections for one year. I think we pay about $7,000 a year to educate one kid in K through 12. So five and a half times as much money is spent on putting a person in the Department of Corrections, 50% of whom will go back to the Department of Corrections, than we spend on educating children. I think we need to reprioritize, and that's what your Democrat-led legislature is attempting to do. Um, I could go on, but I want to give my colleague Mark Snyder an opportunity to talk about some of his terrific accomplishments as a rookie legislator.
7: Hello, everybody. Good morning. Thank you for being out here. Uh, Mark Snyder is my name, just elected the House District 18, just to our north here, and uh, I just really want to thank Tony and Pete. They've been fabulous mentors for me up there. I actually sit right next to Tony on the floor of the House, and whenever I have dumb rookie questions, he's very patient and answers them for me, and uh, Pete Kors had my seat before I did, so... uh, He's also been great that way. I have to admit, I haven't quite gotten the perspective yet to be able to give you a summary of this past five months. It was uh, quite a learning experience. Uh, but I agree with Pete. I think we did a lot of great work this session. There were a lot of bills that have been stacked up uh, like planes over O'Hare uh, for the last four years or more. And so I think for people to think that this was uh, too progressive or too much overreach in this session, you have to be uh, more realistic with the political reality. There's a lot of bills that failed in the Republican-controlled Senate over the last years and uh, people wanted those to come forward. But I can tell you, just from my first year experience, it is, uh, it is quite a process to get a bill all the way through the law. So by the time it goes through the House and the various committees, and then over to the Senate and their various committees, you really end up with a really good piece of legislation. And uh, that's been my experience. Uh, you know, you hear a lot, of people think, well, they did a, a Bill uh, 181 on controlling uh, oil and gas drilling. But when you really look into the details of it, there really are good bills designed to protect the public, not to, you know, to really destroy an industry. In fact, that industry is thriving as we speak right now. So that's just one example. But uh, for me, Um, I I was a mayor at Manitou Springs, served on just about every board and commission, and I really wanted to bring a local perspective up to Denver. Because there is a perception sometimes that uh, legislators in Denver, certainly in Washington, they don't really understand the impacts of what they do, how that affects the local community. So I, I really tried to stick with that throughout the whole session. There were a lot of bills that, uh, I couldn't support for that reason because they they did provide an unfunded mandate or an unnecessary burden on local jurisdictions. Um, I had two, uh, I think there's about 11 bills that I worked on, and uh, all but one of those actually got signed by the governor, so I was very proud of that. Uh, but really, I, the work I did this this year was uh, fell into two categories. One was protecting. and and providing a better quality of life for those people less fortunate. So one bill dealt with establishing an office of public guardianship. There's a lot of folks that are languishing in hospitals, nursing homes, uh, that really have lost the mental capacity to advocate for themselves, whether it's Alzheimer's or just dementia. So we're creating a public guardianship office where these folks will then be able to take on casework and really work with these folks and get a better outcome for them. And it's a real, area you don't hear a lot about, but it's costing us millions of dollars in our health care system. And in the end, we're the ones who pay for that. So I, we looked at several models, private guardianship, has a lot of problems and potential abuse there. And this is one I know that Pete worked on and Tony also back in 2017, uh, got a program started but didn't fund it. So we we're able to look at bar, increasing the probate bar fees, which is an area I've been working in for 25 years, to get some funding as well as some general funds for that. And the other was a Revised Traumatic Brain Injury Program. Uh, You know, again, these are folks that really have uh, kind of fallen through the cracks. There's not a lot of services out there available for them, so we just uh, found a better way to fund it, found some general funding for that, and revised the program, put more folks suffering from brain injuries onto the board so we have a better perspective, they can make better decisions. I would say the rest of the bills that I worked on, I'm on the business affairs and labor and finance committees, and they dealt with uh, a lot of more uh, business-related issues, whether it was renewing the accountancy board. Uh, There were some large tax measures that came pretty late in the session that we worked on. And one that I really spent a lot of time on, though I wasn't uh, a prime sponsor of that, was the equal pay for equal work. And that's one that you know just, I think, everybody deserves to be treated equally and paid equally for doing the same amount of work as somebody else, regardless of gender. So, uh, but that was one that when it first was introduced and had a lot of issues. It hadn't really meshed in well with our existing program with the EEOC or the Department of Labor. So did a lot of work behind the scenes in finding a way to make sure that that fit in with what we're doing already. We actually do a very good job dealing with intentional wage discrimination based on gender. But there's an area of unintentional wage discrimination that continues to persist to this day so i think we found it really made that a much better bill worked it into the existing system that we have while also preserving the right of private action for somebody who is being discriminated against and not getting any kind of positive response but i think the key there is we put a lot of incentives in there for businesses to uh, to do the right thing to step up do their own type of wage audit and examine their own policies and their own pay schedules to make sure that there wasn't any type of unintentional discrimination there. So I think that has a really is going to be a really good bill, and it's going to bring a lot of equality to the workforce and to wages. Uh, otherwise, it was just really an exciting time for me. It was quite a learning experience. Uh, Uh, already this summer I'm uh, serving on the tax policy and expenditure committee and interim committee and just yesterday speaker Becker asked me to chair the uh, wildfire matters review board and you know we have one of the largest if not the largest wildfire urban interface in the state of Colorado and this is one you know and I know human nature now having been a mayor and a counselor uh, you know Five years ago, that's all anybody could talk about was, oh, my God, the wildfire threat and what are we going to do? You know, a couple of wet years and that has receded again. But now is the time that we really need to get ahead of that. I think there's some good practices out there. We did actually authorize another million dollars in a matching grant program. I'm hoping to work with that committee and come up with a real vigorous program, very strategic, that we can protect our wonderful communities and neighborhoods and even some of our downtowns and businesses from the ravages of fire because it may be another rainy wet year this year but you know it's coming back we're gonna have we're gonna be back where we were in 2012 and 2013 and now is the time we have a chance to get a uh, get ahead of that so I'm really looking forward to the next session now that I kind of have a little feel for what happens and what I need to know what I need to do then uh, I'm really feeling I'm going to hit the ground running for a year. So thank you all for being out here, and I'll pass it over to Senator Lee.
3: Thank you. So I wanted to highlight another area that I know is of interest to some people. We had, again, consideration this year of what's called the ERPO Bill, the Emergency Risk Protective Order Bill, the Red Flag Bill, um, wholly mischaracterized and inaccurately described by many as a gun grab. It was anything but that. It is probably one of the most reasonable, thoughtful, moderate approaches to gun uh, regulation that one could imagine. Uh, This is how it works. Basically, if a uh, person sees a family member or law enforcement person uh, sees a person who is exhibiting dangerous behavior, making threats, and is um, in the possession of a weapon or has access for a weapon, they can go to the court, file a petition to suggest that that weapon be taken away from that person. At that point in time, there's a brief hearing and a preliminary order is issued, but then if the judge issues a order to remove the weapon from that dangerous person, uh, a hearing is then scheduled and a lawyer is appointed to represent the gun owner, due process at another higher level, and a hearing is held at which the standard of proof is not preponderance of, of evidence, which is the, the low civil standard, but a clear and convincing evidence that that person has a gun, and they are have made threats and that they are a risk to someone in the community. And then that gun is removed for a temporary period of time. So that's what the bill was. As I say, it was mischaracterized for a lot of people. And I can tell you from the, the debate on the floor, virtually everyone who opposed the bill came up and said, we have, uh, guns aren't the problem. The problem is mental illness and people who are Um, out of control. So we passed a series of mental health bills, but there was an opportunity on the very day that we were discussing the ERPO bill in the Senate. A bill came up to provide psychological counseling and social workers in schools and our colleagues across the aisle voted that down unanimously. So we talk about the need for mental health Uh, But when it comes to putting the rubber on the road, I would suggest mental health in this context is a pretext. There is So the bills that we did take a look at, uh, just two of them, dealt with uh, people who are at risk of incarceration because of mental illness. Uh, Senate Bill 223. Or, excuse me 222 and another bill senate bill 223 to deal with people who have mental illness who are already in the criminal justice system so we passed uh the first bill 222 to provide a comprehensive analysis of what services are available mental health behavioral health and drug addiction services throughout the state of colorado and to ensure that there is a continuum of care a safety net of care so that people who are in crisis can find a place to go and that bill passed uh, both houses i was the senate sponsor of it and my colleague in the i can't remember who sponsored it in the house but then 223 was a the bill to deal with people with mental illness who are already in the criminal justice system waiting for a hearing to determine if they are competent to proceed. Uh, They were languishing because those services were not being provided. Now they will be provided under very strict guidelines. And then the second part is if a person is determined incompetent to proceed because of mental illness, uh, they're entitled to. Uh, restoration services to restore them to a level of mental competency, and people, again, were languishing in, in uh, local jails for six, seven, eight months awaiting those services. Well, now we've put absolute timelines, like two and three weeks, so the people have to get restoration services. So we have been addressing the mental health issues while also trying to keep our community safe from things like the STEM school shooting, et cetera. So um, we're gonna take some questions and talk about a lot of these issues at the end. But before we move to that, I wanna invite up uh, to join us our special guest, the first democratic secretary of state in many years, Jenna Griswold. Thank you.
5: hearing the microphone yeah. okay how are y'all doing are you? beautiful morning uh, and I'm so glad to be here with you my name is Jenna Griswold and I'm Colorado Secretary of State uh, and I am so excited to be here with the representatives and the senator because we got so much done when it comes to democracy this legislative session we did- you all should give all these guys a hug, three high fives, uh, because we really made history in Colorado. Um, you know, I decided to run for Secretary of State because I grew up in rural Colorado. I grew up in Estes Park, uh, and I grew up pretty working class. So growing up, my mom would work two jobs, and there was times when we were on food stamps, times we were on food ban- or going to food banks, Uh, And I started working the summer after seventh grade at the old post office cafe, which was right next to the post office in Estes Park, uh, and just saw a lot of Colorado families struggling. That's what inspired me to be the first person in my family to go to a four-year college and then to law school, and that's why it's so important to me that no matter where you live, if you're from a town like me with more elk than people, uh, if you're Republican, Democrat, independent, if you're richer or if you're more working class like I grew up, you need to have your voice heard in our democracy. That's the the fundamental promise of this country. Uh, And even upon taking office, before taking office, Colorado was already a national leader when it came to elections. Uh, The fact that we have early voting, uh, in-person voting, mail ballots, same-day voter registration shines in stark contrast to the voter suppression we see across the nation. We just have to look to Florida, Georgia, North Dakota, what was happening with the Native Americans to see that the fight for our our civil liberties, the fight for our our democratic values, for every eligible citizen to have their voice heard uh, is still a work in progress. And all that work that the suffragists fought for, uh, we are actually this week the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. All that fight that the people who marched and, and gave their lives for our country, either abroad or in the civil rights movement, uh, their goal for us to have a democracy that we all should really be proud of is still a work in progress. So when I assumed office uh, and on the campaign trail, I said I wanted to do three things. Number one, make sure that eligible people in Colorado have access to our elections. Number two, expand automatic voter registration. And number three, take a big stand against dark money in the special interests that are funneling funds into our democracy and try to even the playing field for everyday people. Uh, And I I, I wanna report back because I think it's very important to say this is what I wanted to do and this is what we did. And the report is we got every single one done this legislative session. (laughs) Thanks to people like your representatives. So first and foremost, we passed uh, a big elections omnibus bill. Uh, And like I said, look, we are a a model, we were a model already, but just because you're a leader doesn't mean you stop because you hit a benchmark. You continually improve. Uh, And we saw in 2018 in Colorado on election day, 25 locations, voting locations, with over an hour line. So we just passed a a big omnibus bill that will increase voting locations and drop boxes for all Coloradans across our state. It's going to guarantee polling locations and drop boxes on public universities so that students can get to the polls. Uh, And we reversed some antiquated laws uh, that regulated tribal voting in Colorado to make sure that tribal leadership can register people to vote, which believe it or not, they were not allowed to within weeks uh, before an election. We g- now are going to have guaranteed polling locations and drop boxes on all our tribal lands at tribal reco- at tribal request uh, and are really putting a, a good mark in the a good line to say, look, what happens in North Dakota, what happens in Georgia, what happens in Texas is not going to happen in Colorado because we believe in our democracy. The second thing, expanding automatic voter registration. Uh, And what that is, is it's actually already started. Uh, My predecessor, uh, El Paso County Commissioner, or City Councilor, uh, Wayne Williams actually started it when he was Secretary of State. And what it does is when you know someone is eligible to vote, you register them and you say, okay, you can opt out from your registration when you see they're not registered. That already existed at driver's license offices in Colorado under Secretary Williams' leadership. So what we did is changed it around a little bit of how it it works at the DMV to make it a little bit more efficient, but then we're hoping to expand outwards. Because all too often, younger people, people in big cities, older people, people with disabilities, aren't going to driver's license offices. And I really do think that we should be planning for driverless cars coming, uh, and people going less and less to driver's license offices. So we wanted to expand out of of the driver's license offices. The legislature passed it, and we will be expanding automatic voter registration, and will become a national leader in making registering to vote accessible, and we should be very proud of that, very proud of that. (laughs) And third is the big, hard issue of dark money. Do you all know what dark money is? So it's secret political spending. And you know, someone who grew up pretty working class who, look, I funded college, I funded law school, I don't even wanna tell you how much my educational debt is um, because it's almost as high as my mortgage. Maybe my mortgage is slightly higher. But you all know, like look, Healthcare is so expensive, education is so expensive, housing is so expensive. Our democracy is supposed to be the great equalizer. But what happens is we get special interests uh, and what amounts to the billionaire class funneling millions and millions of dollars through super PACs and not even disclosing what they're doing. And that's a reality that has taken, taken shape coast to coast. So when I became Secretary of State, Uh, I actually pulled all the money spent in Colorado Super PACs in 2018. Can any guess on how much was spent through Super PACs? They're called Independent Expenditure Committees in Colorado. Any guess? There's, well there is a wrong answer because I have the right answer, but there's no wrong guesses. 82 million dollars, just in 2018. Of that 82 million dollars, over 75% was donated in donations of over $100,000. Over a third of that money was donated in donations of above $500,000. Was that you guys giving by chance? No. (laughs) And of all that money, the 82 million, over 80% was either from corporations or from hard to trace donors, so it was dark money. Uh, And I think this should be troubling to us For three major reasons, number one, we need basic facts when we're choosing who we're gonna vote for. And part of that basic facts is knowing who is sending you the message. So for us to to decide who our leaders are, we need to know, is what we're hearing from them correct? Who's telling us this? Number two, corruption or the appearance of corruption. I sure wanna know, with all due respect to everybody in the legislature, if someone is putting a million dollars in to help a legislator win. Because it looks, the appearance is of a corruption and we want to not make have that happen. And number three, foreign influence. We saw in 2016 foreign countries run a media campaign, actively try to compromise our elections and put money into some elections. So we need to know that no foreign money is coming in. So what we did, it's not perfect, but it is the best campaign finance system now in the nation. It is the very best. It's going to help stop dark money. So when entities or big donors say, hey, I don't want to be disclosed. I want to try to funnel my money through a C4 or a C5 or a C6 into a super PAC, they're no longer going to be able to do it. They're going to have to disclose if they earmark that money. When it comes to foreign spending, we put a complete ban on foreign countries, foreign nationals, foreign corporations from putting money into our politics here in Colorado at the state level. And when it comes to corporations, look, I think corporations should stand by their political spending. Uh, And previously, a corporation could spend straight out of their coffers and not even have to tell you that they were doing it when they were spending on ballot initiatives. We changed that and now they're gonna have to disclose what they're doing. So this is a a big democracy package. This is a democracy package that I think really solidifies our leadership nationally, not only when it comes to elections, but campaign finance. Uh, And we're at a time when, look, uh, corruption or the appearance of it is on the rise. And we need to know that elected leaders are there to do the right thing. We should be proud of this. Uh, And lastly, I have a whole list of legislation related to democracy. The last thing I want to add on is we also did lobbyist reform, which is another thing that I oversee to make sure that lobbyists are telling the legislators, the media, what bills they're lobbying on. Because believe it or not, more was spent in 2018 on lobbying our state legislature than was given to every single representative and every single senator in the state capital here. So it's a big business, there's great lobbyists, there's not-so-great lobbyists, runs the gamut, but we deserve to know who's trying to influence the decision-maker's decisions. So I I just wanna really thank all of you. I'm really looking forward uh, to all the questions, but more than anything, thank the legislators for their amazing leadership uh, when it comes to democracy and creating a democracy that we should all be able to believe in but then also putting a stake in the ground and saying Colorado is a national leader in democracy, an example of what this nation can be. So can we give a round of applause to our legislators? That's fantastic. And with that, questions? So the question was about our voting machines in Colorado. And again, we really have to hand it to the legislators, because we have some of the best voting systems in the nation. Unlike other states, our voting machines are not connected to the Internet. We also did a massive upgrade of voting machines within the last 10 years, compared to other states where, man, oh, man, some of them are running on systems that are no longer supported. They're not. The legislature also took us to a, a, a paper, a voter-verified paper ballot, which is necessary in this day and age. I, I think to, to think that there are not cyber risks is to not really look at all the risks. And why having that paper ballot is so important is that we can then go audit that ballot. Uh, so in Colorado, none of the machines are connected, connected you have a you can verify your ballot paper on a paper machine we do use tabulation machines so you get your ballot and then it gets tabulated in a machine and we like that's really the only electronic part of the process and it's necessary because they're more accurate than hand counting believe it or not but then we come and we do one of the best audits in the nation a risk limiting audit where we pull a certain amount of ballots after the fact and what you're auditing against is those tabulation machines Um, So comparatively, we are one of the most secure states in the nation to cast a ballot. Uh, I am trying to continue that and making sure that we are cracking down on vulnerabilities. Uh, In our IT department, uh, at the Department of State, they, they allow me to sleep well at night. We are doing things unlike any other state in the nation. So for example, do you all know what the dark web is? So the dark web, it's basically another platform where people talk to each other about doing bad things. So there's chat rooms and you get arm sales, you get drug sales, you get illicit behavior going over the dark web. The Department of Homeland Security, who we partner with, monitors the dark web when it comes to our elections. We want to make sure if there's chatter around Colorado elections, we do that also. We do that also. We do penetration testing, where we invite DHS or other people to try to break into our systems. We also do things it's called a hunt, where we actually allow uh, either, either private sector organizations or DHS into our systems to go see it if there's any vulnerabilities. Uh, and I will tell you, it is extremely hard to sign onto a computer in the Department of State. Uh, I know from experience there's about six passwords every single time um, and we are a, a leader on security in are just going to continue to innovate uh, because just just like with voting and even more so with cyber cyber threats always evolve right so we need to always be evolving with them uh, and it's always a, a, a run to try to be three steps ahead but I'm, I'm very confident in our systems
6: I have a question on voter registration. From 2012 until 2016, seems as if the fees for making a mistake are the voter registration, well, you understand what I'm saying. The fees increase. So I believe in 2016, we didn't have as many voter registration agents as we had in 2012. Is there anything we can do to reduce the amount of fee because I think people are backing off of doing voter registrations because they can't afford the fees if you make a mistake. Are you talking about
8: the the voter registration rights? Yes.
5: That's a a really good question. And to take a step back, please, uh, questions for all the legislators too. I don't want to take your time up. Um, I I think that's a, a really good question because access is so important. Uh, And this is a state that has said, time and time again, that look, you can register early, you can register in person, you can register on election day, you can register online. Uh, And there has been a lot of organizations such as New Era, the League of Women Voters, and just people who are really concerned about our democracy that have have been really focused on on getting people uh, registered to vote. It's something that's really important to me. Um, We are pulling together a group to look look not only uh, at fees and things like that, but also uh, at just the the document that you're filling out. Um, So we're pulling people together to holistically look at that system to make sure that it it runs smoothly. Uh, You know, I I think it's really important. Uh, I, I don't know, gosh, what state was it? Maybe it was Tennessee or Louisiana. Uh, that just made it extremely hard for people to register folks to vote. Uh, And I think across the board, we really need to stand for everyday people being able to participate in our democracy, and part of that is voter registration drives, and and we're looking to to see how can we take that to the next level. Uh, So the question is, I think, on the National Popular Vote Compact, which is something that I support. Uh, I think the fundamental one person, one vote is something that's enshrined into our nation. Uh, uh, But I also think that you're really hitting something, the the nail right on the head, that it's up to states uh, to determine how they cast their electoral votes. It's up to states. Uh, And that cannot be mandated uh, by the the U.S. Congress, but states can decide how they cast those electoral votes, and they have in the past. Uh, So, and and they've changed how they decided to cast those uh, across our history. So what the the national, uh, uh, what is it called? National Popular Vote Compact does is basically say when so many states opt in, those states will have their electors vote for the president for whoever wins the majority of the popular vote across the nation. And in my eyes, I think that's more fair because what I think happens now is that there's uh, a small amount of states that have a small amount of population that end up swinging the entire national decision. (laughs) So I, I know there's disagreement up, up, along the, those lines, but that's something that I really stand for. I, I believe fundamentally in, in one person, one vote.
8: Yes. I do have a question for the forum. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when Governor Polis was here in Colorado Springs at his town hall meeting, he said he would sign legislation for having all of our Colorado statewide election ballots sent out with prepaid post return envelopes. So we don't have to put stamps on our envelopes. I think that's the last message of a poll tax. So my question is, will you support, sponsor, or promote legislation so that all of our Colorado statewide election ballots are sent with prepaid postage return envelopes? It only costs 0.05% of the state budget, a very small number. Uh, If there's anything I think that the government should pay for, isn't it mailing in our (laughs) ballots? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
5: it's not that hard a question. <laughs> well, well, it kind of is a hard question, right? I, I do think we, we obviously do not want poll taxes, uh, but there's a couple things at play, and can I describe some of the circumstances that folks are concerned about with this? So first, everybody receives a mail-in ballot. Seventy-five percent of people who vote their mail-in ballot drop it at a drop box. And part of what we just passed in this big voting omnibus bill is to put more drop boxes to make that more convenient than ever. And that's
8: one for every 30,000 voters is what we got. And each of those ballot boxes cost $10,000 for the box, the monitoring, and the security.
5: I, I totally agree on the value that, look, voting should be seamless. Um, second issue, the post office. So in, Southern Colorado and Southwestern Colorado, the mail-in ballots actually go to New Mexico before they get sent back up to Colorado. There has been historic problems with the post office itself. And those have been problems over decades that just aren't, aren't worked out. So what we've seen in other states is that, so Washington, they moved to having those stamps on all the ballots, and it changed how voters acted. Uh, So instead of the majority of voters dropping off their ballot, they suddenly go through the post office. uh, And it switches how people vote their ballot. And I think that's something we really have to study to make sure that we don't end up disenfranchising people because they are sending their mail-in ballot to a place and they're not returned on time. And third, of course, is the budgetary, is the budget. So if the legislature could find the money which is a question for them, but is very hard in a state like ours. I think we would be a different conversation. But I would really want to sit down and say, number one, is there the money? Because we don't have the budget. We don't have the budget. Uh, the county clerks largely do not have the budget. And I want to make sure that the county clerks have enough people and are open enough hours, because we have county clerks who are not even open five days a week, uh, and just look at it holistically. But overall, I'm very open to the idea, just as long as we're making sure that People's mail-in ballots get back to us on time because if they don't, they don't get counted, and we do have an issue with the post office that I, I hope we can work out. But number two, that there's the money from the legislature and the general fund.
1: Okay, one more
4: question. The oh. Yes, <laughs> and yes here. And <clears throat> so I have a question about campaign finance laws and when they begin to apply. And the context is my school district is considering putting a bond on the on the ballot. They put out a mailer to the community discussing this issue and they're being accused of violating the campaign finance laws. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand when those laws begin to apply.
5: Uh, well, we already have laws on the books. Uh, the new laws is going to effect on August 2nd. Um, I assume what you're talking about is potentially laws that we already have on the books. Um, I'm I'm not sure of the exact issue, but it would also be inappropriate for me to opine on that uh, because how we have basically the prosecution of campaign finance set up in our office, uh, it's set up wholly independent from me. There's a team of civil servants who look at complaints. So people file a complaint with our office, civil servants look at it, determine whether they want to prosecute or not or whether uh, they can cure it. Uh, because we just want people to comply we don't want to slap people with big fines unless they deserve it um if there's a cure period if they cure it uh they they let them go and and they fix the issue if not they prosecute it with uh, an administrative law judge Uh, and then the administrative law judge makes a recommendation and then it comes back to the agency for a final agency decision and i am actually firewalled from that entire process um, so the answer is, I am not sure, uh, but you can call the office and talk to the campaign. We have uh, two campaign finance teams. One is to advise, and the other one is to look at complaints and to prosecute or not. Um, but they are fantastic. They have been there. A, a lot of the, one of the great things about this office is that you know, there's other secretaries of state in other states where they appoint a whole new team when they come in. 400 new people, 100 new people, and no one knows what they're doing. Uh, But we have wonderful civil servants in this office who have been there, gosh, three decades. They'll be there longer than me, they'll be there longer than any Secretary of State, uh, and they're just fantastic, and I'm sure they could help answer any question.
1: Thank you. Okay, let's thank our Secretary of State for time. Thank (laughs) you. So we'll continue to question this, but with, with her. Yeah. we got to let her go. She's got a busy day. <laughs> That's OK. Go ahead. So we'll we'll continue with the questioning. We, we've got about uh, maybe 20 more minutes. And also, there, there's refreshments in the back. So Miguel, you had a question.
6: Okay. Um, I'm the and kids. And I to have our Children's Day for all the sacrifice they've done for this country in their lives in school. You've got to give them recognition. We have a lot of children
1: that are good, that graduate from college, high school, and but they never get the recognition. And we've got to work together, together, to build confidence in them. Instead, we have to honor them. We
8: never give them recognition. And
1: okay, thanks, Miguel, I mean, that, that's a great idea. Uh, I think our kids uh, are up against a lot, and with what's going on in the nation today, uh, things have become the norm that shouldn't be the norm, so I, I don't uh, disagree with that at all. Okay, other questions, and the three of us will try to answer. Yes, ma'am, in, in the orange. I have a question concerning going back to the mental health and addressing those issues in the community. How much effort is being
8: uh, directed towards the veterans
0: with the mental health
8: issues that return home?
6: Because oftentimes, even though the VA addresses that, it's so cumbersome for them to get through the system and
1: get the mental health they need. can be a frustration and effort for them to
8: do that, and is there some way that that can be addressed um, more seamlessly or more effectively that they can get the help that they need,
1: because, as you know, they come back with a myriad of uh, situations.
3: you, You have identified an issue that has been plaguing this state and the nation for quite a while, the inadequacy of the treatment of veterans returning from uh, overseas with PTSD and TBI and uh, getting involved in the criminal justice system. El Paso County, actually the 4th Judicial District has been a terrific innovator in that area in that they set up one of the first in the nation veteran trauma courts and the veteran trauma court is for uh, veterans who have gotten in trouble with the law most of whom have Uh, behavioral health issues or drug issues, and they actually appoint peer mentors to work with those veterans to help them navigate the complexities of the system. So the the issue that you're describing is on the agenda of the folks who are implementing that bill. I previously referred to Senate Bill 222. It's designed to put together a safety net to make sure that uh, that health care is available affordable and accessible and they're going to set up a um, internet uh, list of providers to make it easier for people to find where the services are available so it, it work we're, we're conscious of the issue we're working on the issue and uh, keep monitoring us and making us aware as you find ripples in the system because we really want it to work better.
7: If I could just follow up on that. uh, You've identified one of the most critical issues in Colorado. We actually have good laws on the books. We require parity in health care. So if you provide uh, physical health care, you have to provide the same level of mental health care. We don't enforce that right now. Most uh, all across Colorado, especially rural Colorado, there is absolutely no services available or you have to drive 100 miles to get it. So I think we really need to start from the very beginning, look at the book, laws we have on the books right now and enforce those and make sure that we hold these healthcare providers to that standard that we've set by law. And I think well, that would be a good place to start, just enforcing the laws we have now that are not being taken advantage of. So, and I think there's more work that can be done, but thank you. Yeah, this
8: one right here, I So I, I have some. I don't know if it's a question, but I have some serious concerns about transparency around charter schools, especially making their board agendas and board meeting materials and board recordings available online on the website. Uh, my charter school, you literally have to drive by the front door to see the agenda. They won't even read it to you. So thats I would really like to see some stronger laws on the book about charter school transparency, and especially around financing of buildings We've got a charter school building corporation who owes more now than when they built the school 10 years ago. And it's just an unending source of taxpayer dollars flowing to the building corporation. It looks like they own their building, but they're underwater on the building. And and this information is very difficult to get. Uh, We're being stonewalled on CORA requests. So this is just, I think, a huge area where we need some support from the legislature. I'll send you a lot more details.
1: Okay, yeah, we're taking some notes. We'll, we'll take a look at that. Yes, ma'am. First of all, bravo for everything that you've accomplished. are all very <laughs> you,
8: you all represent El Paso County, which has the highest percentage of veterans of any county in the state of Colorado. Yet we have no long-term care facilities for disabled veterans. The closest one is down in Florence, long drive for to go to visit their loved ones how do you respond to Republican charges that it is difficult to get legislation passed that will benefit veterans in a democratic controlled legislature
1: And you have some specifics I don't know if that's true or no, what specifics First of all, I don't believe that that's true, but I'd be more than yeah. willing to talk to you offline about that.
3: So I've, I've been in the legislature for nine years. I have not seen a Republican-initiated uh, measure to provide long-term care facilities for veterans in the state of Colorado. You're absolutely right. So for them to say they can't get You're it through, the first step would be to, to yeah. propose it. Yeah, you would
8: be willing to work on a bipartisan effort to accomplish this?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, every legislator gets five bills, so if they bring the bills, it will get assigned to a committee. We have what's called in Colorado the gavel amendment. Uh, A committee chair can't just take a bill and uh, put it in his back pocket and not hear it. If a Republican or Democratic, any legislator uh, proposes a bill, it gets read across the desk and it gets assigned to a committee, and it has to get a hearing. So I think it's a bit unfair to imply that the Democratic-controlled legislature has stalled Republican bills to uh, provide long-term care facilities when they haven't provided them. I could say it's hard to get that bill through a, uh, you know, any bill through a legislature if you don't propose the bill. Okay, I would like to I would like to speak with
8: all of you. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. But you would all be working, you'd all be committed to working on legislation that would provide long-term care facility in El Paso County for disabled
1: veterans. Absolutely. be willing to take a look at that because to do that it's going to take a combination of federal dollars, local dollars, oh, and, and state dollars. Absolutely. Yeah. The state has to come up with... But we, we'd be willing to take a look at that if that's proposed. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, sir. In front. I, I see that.
3: Tell up. us about gun legislation. What are the prospects?
1: besides what we talked about with the bill.
3: I've been talking to Pete a lot. Uh, in the Denver Post today, the cartoon on the editorial page has some uh, policeman and there's a suited man with his hands up against the wall and he says I'm arresting you for neglect. And uh, the references of course to whether it's The stem school violence parkland the man the suits congress you're our legislators there's a universe of legislation that's possible the data is overwhelming with respect to the problems that we have with more than 300 million guns in the country and the death rate talking to lady city before the meeting if we just cause people lock them up. That I don't think is the only answer, but we need some more answers. So, good question. Uh, significant issue. The legislature took that issue on with ERPO this year. Um, that prospect of that legislation triggered an editorial by the Gazette-Telegraph calling for my recall. Not a vote on this bill, But the suggestion that I might vote for this bill uh, triggered that. So I can tell you, in this community, there is a strong Second Amendment uh, zealotry that is extraordinary and extreme. And I can tell you, we took on that ERPO bill, and that thing was filibustered by our Republican colleagues for multiple hours. Uh, The ERPRO bill last year was co-sponsored in the House by the House Minority Leader Cole Wist, who then lost his seat in the the, uh, legislature because he had proposed a bill which provided some minor limitation on the right to um, have a gun unrestricted. And he was actually primaried and lost. So there's members of the Republican Party who are so zealously opposed to any form of legislation that that's one of the challenges that's faced by the legislature. Um, You've been around here long enough and recall, remember the recall of Senator John Morris, who sat in my seat, the seat I now occupy, Senate District 11, who was recalled because he supported a ban on magazine capacity limitation and the front page of the Gazette today had a story about a lawsuit being led by our Sheriff Bill Elder to repeal the existing um, 10-bullet magazine capacity limit. So It's a tough slog. Um, We did pass a bill this year which provided for school safety, a um, school safety incident response grant program which funded a center in Denver called the DeAngelis Center named after Frank DeAngelis, the uh, principal of Columbine High School uh, 20 years ago when they had the shooting there and the um, school safety bill, which I sponsored last year and then again this year, basically provided a million and a half dollars to the Department of Public Safety for school districts to, or excuse me, for a nonprofit to apply to to get money to train school districts around the state. And last year, the biggest opposition to it was Jim Wilson, the um, representative over in Salida, his representative his excuse me, uh, resistance to the bill arose from the fact that he was afraid it was too Denver centric. So we talked to him and he, uh, based on our commitment to do training in uh rural Colorado, became my co-sponsor in the House this year. So experts from around the country have been engaged by this DeAngelus Center in uh how to teach local law enforcement and school officials how to respond Uh, most effectively with best practices that they've learned over the country over the last 200 school shootings. So we're dealing somewhat with at least that school issue. Um, I'm sure there will be some interest in other bills and I'd be happy to talk to you more about other types of gun bills as going forward. I think locking up guns makes sense. I would not be, uh, I'd be supportive of a bill of that nature and to impose some liability. Um, I think these things need to be analyzed and studied. What we want to do are things that are effective and have been proven to actually reduce the number of people who get shot with guns. I think ERPO is one of them, and I think there are a lot of others out there. We ought to be taking a look at it. We owe that to our constituents. Uh, Kids shouldn't live in a time of fear when they're going to school.
7: Yeah I think that's a great question and uh, you know I'm, I'm a proud gun owner. I've got a concealed carry permit from El Paso County Sheriff and I talked to a lot of people in the same situation and I think we've been misled and we've been led down a, a false path with the NRA and with recalls of 2013 and Uh, all the stuff that's gone in the past. But I think times are really changing now. I think uh, I listen to a lot of high school kids and college kids, and they're just appalled, and they're demanding action from us. And quite frankly, thoughts and prayers just don't cut it for me anymore. You know, there's uh, – these tragedies just continue to happen. So I think you have to recognize that we are a gun culture. You're not getting the guns out of this country. We know that. But I think there's a vast majority of of people that – would agree on sensible gun regulation. So, strict liability. So, if you leave a, a loaded weapon in your home and, God forbid, a child gets a hold of it, you need to be held strictly liable and prosecuted for that. There's a lot of measures that we can take that I think the vast majority of people, gun owners, will support. And I think that's what we need to focus on. We need to create a culture of responsible gun ownership. And I think most everybody folks within the NRA agree with that. So I think uh, we we get caught, we get bogged down when somebody proposed like ERPO, now they're talking about recalls, filing lawsuits, you know, um, they talk about a slippery slope. Oh well if you do this, if we if we continue to file this slippery slope argument, we'll never get anything. So I really think we need to just start looking at sensible reforms that have vast majority of support from gun owners and non-gun owners alike and just start chipping away at it in that
1: way. I want to have uh, Officer Pratt, will you come up and talk about uh, uh, what you did in, in your capacity with uh, some grant money from the, uh, the safety bill that we did? Just to kind of get a perspective on that. This is Officer
4: Dave, Dave Pratt. Put me on the spot, my friend. I wasn't here to to learn and hang out with you guys. Um, Hi, guys. My name's David. Uh, I'm a retired officer, not active sworn anymore. Uh, Now I have the uh, true blessing of serving School District 49 in a safety capacity. So I get to do a lot with my administrators, my school teams, uh, my parent communities. and our kids to help build safe schools so thanks to the grant funding that was generated from the state our district was able to apply for some of those funds and we've implemented some safety measures uh, that are really helpful for us a school district of about 20,000 kids you'll notice that we've got glass here and if somebody with a gun came by and was wanting to do harm in this this room here we've put in 3m protective film and most of our schools and by the end of this summer we should be in all the schools, especially at points of entry when you look at what happened at Sandy Hook, um, point of entry was where the shooter came into the school. So it doesn't prevent bullets from coming in to the occupied classrooms or a room like this. Uh, The bullets could still penetrate that glass, but it maintains the integrity of the glass and it keeps the bullet from being as accurate. And it takes about a minute and 45 seconds if the bad guy had the butt of the gun and was pounding the glass to completely break through. And that gives us a lot of time to get kids out of there to a safe place to lock down and for law enforcement to come and respond. One of the other key elements for safe schools is you've got to have strong communication platforms. And thanks to the grant funding, We're able to supply all of our elementary schools with 15 brand new Motorola radios that are just top of the line for us to maintain communication, which is so critical in an event. Um, Additionally, we're piloting a program called Blue Point. You'll notice over here the fire pull stations. Uh, In Sand Creek High School, we've got blue-colored pull stations that immediately send the school into lockdown, sets off Strobe lights, um, an automated alarm system that in the intercom that says lock down, locks lights out of sight for 50 seconds. That message goes to a comm center and then to CSPD or EPSO to get officers to the school in an event really, really quickly. And that wasn't funded through the grant. We had to come up with that separately. But just some, there are some innovative things that we can be doing as communities to make our kids. Uh, Feel safer in their schools, and what could be more important than that? So. thank you. Uh,
1: just a couple other comments. You know, uh, we are doing uh, whatever whatever we can. Uh, if you want to uh, charge us with, with neglect, you know, you're you're more than welcome to do that. But the Democratic Party is not neglectful in standing up for for gun safety legislation. Uh, I'm one of those persons that uh, has a recall, filed petition on them. They haven't activated that. But if it saves one life, then I'm willing to take that hit. Uh, A few weeks ago, I went to a funeral for a 19-year-old that met this person, a 19-year-old female, that was part of our church years ago. Met a 23-year-old online. That 23-year-old began to abuse this young lady moved her away from Colorado Springs to a trailer park down in Rocky Fork, Colorado, and while she was on the phone with her mom, shot her five times, killed her, and then killed himself. The Errol Law, in effect, could have saved, saved that life. We don't know, but we're doing whatever we can uh, because this society, we can't sit back and, and wait and allow the message that uh, Representative Snyder talked about, That that's a slippery slope about We're not advocating for violating the Second Amendment rights, but we are advocating for gun safety, sensible legislation. So yes, in the back.
6: Uh, First of all, thank you all so much. And thank everybody in here for taking a beautiful Saturday to be indoors instead of out. Going totally off of where we've been. Did you speak to the gay conversion therapy man? Did I miss that? I came in late. If you didn't, thank you so much, number one. And number two, I would be remiss And uh, I did catch Jenna in the hall to say that she has stood up for women's rights and has elected to not (coughs) send our tax dollars in Alabama because of the egregious attack against women's rights there regarding abortion. So please keep her in mind. And if you can write the editor, let everybody know how much we appreciate what our Secretary of State is doing. It may appear small, but it's huge. We stand in solidarity with her. So, just thank you so much for the legislation you've gotten done so
1: far. If you want to speak to the gay conversion ban, the bill passed. Yes, yes, but I didn't know you highlighted that, so thank you. Let's get somebody else ahead. Okay.
8: okay.
6: So I actually have a question about IRPA in regards to domestic violence. I was a victim of domestic violence and I was lucky enough to get a restraining order. What kind of protections are there for women because I can absolutely see my ex-husband would have announced that I was crazy, gone to the police, told them I was crazy and taken that gun. And that gun was actually what kept me safe, not my restraining order because he went back and forth all over that. So what protection is there because what I'm hearing is my gun would be taken away while I wait for you know the legislative process <laughs> to go through and I'm I I'm really worried for women out there yeah. who need to be safe. So I would not have it and I would then be I eligible. think that's correct. Thank you. Yeah. on the verbal kind of if a judge issues a temporary that would be um, they would have a burden of proof or the respondent would have a burden of proof that they would have to provide in order to take that, or to, in order to um, issue a temporary extremist protection order, um, in which case it would be taken from you right away, but there would have to be a burden of proof beforehand. And then you would have that full evidentiary, evidentiary, excuse me, hearing within 14 days.
7: For those who don't know, this is Rachel Miner, my legislative aide. And, uh, I did a
6: lot of research on it. So. <laughs>
7: and uh, and you, you raised a great question. I actually started getting involved with the ERPO effort back in December before the session started. As an attorney, I had a lot of concerns about some of the provisions of that. And, uh, you know, and, and in my research of the states, 11 states or so that have something now.
3: Yeah, well, not necessarily so. Um, you know, the case has to be made, and then the... Uh, person who had their gun uh, taken away by the court order comes back in for a court hearing, and that could be done within a very short period of time, and then it's a full-blown hearing, and the, uh, you know, there has to be proof, and there has to be evidence that can be presented on the other side to say, you know, this is a pretext to get the gun away from me, and uh, so it's a full-blown hearing, and you know, I, for one, having worked in the criminal justice system for 30 plus years. I have a lot of faith in judges. I mean, they don't get it right every single time, but the vast majority of times when there's an evidentiary hearing, um, the judge is gonna come out with the right decision. So if you have evidence in your history that you're, you, know, you need that as a matter of safety, those issues will be weighed and give, given uh, due consideration by the court
7: I couldn't find one instance of a false report where somebody actually went in and just did what you described I recognize that that is a possibility and I worked really hard I wanted some really tough sanctions in there for false reporting or somebody files a false report at the same time you're trying to balance that with keeping it open for, for legitimate cases and wanting people to come through so that has not yet been an issue but I think you, you, you raise a, a real potential uh, problem in that area, so uh, I think it's something, I think with a law like this, when it's first introduced, we would love for it to be perfect in every respect, but I suspect it's gonna be something that we'll have to address in the next several sessions as the things get revealed. So thank you for bringing that specific point to uh, the point. It hasn't been an issue yet, as far as I, all my research could tell, but certainly you raise an issue that needs to be considered, so thank you. Thank you.
1: Just a couple more questions about 10 till 12. Oh, yes, ma'am. There's a lot of work going on in the
6: community right now to close the coal fired uh, electricity generation right in the middle of our town. Um, and at the same time, our population is exploding and we're building hundreds and even thousands of new homes on the east edge of town. Um, is there any uh, movement toward requiring builders of new homes? To use energy efficient building practices and include rooftop solar as, if not a standard of what they offer, or a requirement for all new homes that are built.
1: I, I don't know of any specific legislation. I know we we uh, we've had several pieces of legislation that have come through uh, regarding renewable energy uh, and incentives to to do that. Um, fortunately. Uh, um, Tara Springs Utilities is is way ahead of the game. They're starting to do uh, grid systems and whatnot, looking at renewable energy uh, for the future. There's some realistic goals and there's some not so realistic goals in, in the future. But anything specific on that, I'm not I'm not sure. But I know uh, we are doing several pieces of legislation to to bring about incentives to uh, for people that are using uh, renewable energy. Well, and. I appreciate the work, the
6: work that Colorado Springs is doing, but a lot of those communities are county, and so we have our own electric platforms and I'm wondering if there's
7: anything we can do to move them forward. Well, it's, it's a really big issue. I, I served on the Regional Building Commission, seems like a lifetime ago now, but it's been around for that long, where people have talked about, can we put in some types of requirements? And uh, generally, the because you can imagine the home builders and the constructors are very against mandates that will drive up the price of a house. So uh, we haven't really been able to get that started, but we had some legislation, I think, in this year with a coal plant securitization bill, which will make it easier to retire coal plants like the Drake and, and others along those lines. Um, right now, I think our best hope is that Consumers just demand better action, so we lost our state tax credit for installing rooftop solar. I think we need to get that back, and we need to do everything we can to you know, drive the economy towards a more renewable future. And I think we're, we're pretty much getting there now. I mean, the overwhelming sentiment of public and consumers of electricity, we want to transition away from fossil fuels and, and, and reduce carbon output. So I think it's already starting to happen, uh, but you know we're racing against the clock right now. So uh, I think anything we can do at the state level, we would be glad to bring bills, to bring back that tax credit, see what we can do to at least create a level playing field. You would be surprised at the maybe not, but the the amount and the money the subsidies that are baked into our tax code. I mean the first. Uh, 300,000 tons of coal every quarter are exempt from excise taxes. So we have a process going on right now to evaluate all these tax credits and programs, see if uh, how efficient they are, and whether they're achieving a good public purpose. It, it is really tough to angle this Gordian knot. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this summer in the Interim Committee with Tax Policy here. But I think if we can create a level playing field so that the relative cost of energy from Renewables and fossil fuels are about the same. I think consumer sentiment will just take us directly to that. But given the time constraints that we have, we need more. And I know that the Regional Building Commission, Manatee Springs is my my little community, is fairly progressive for El Paso County. And we really wanted a mandate and, and some type of requirements on renewables. And you know, we got a lot of pushback from Colorado Springs and El Paso County and a lot of the constructors and developers saying you know, they didn't want mandates. So right, we're not there yet, but I think you're right on the exact issue that we need to be addressing.
1: Okay, one one last question, and we'll all all three of us will be around afterwards uh, to, uh, to have a conversation with you. We also have... Uh, Uh, some notes in the back that yeah, all all the way in the back on on the table uh, just kind of an overview of some key key legislation that that some that we've talked about some we didn't get a chance to so that last question Miguel okay well thanks thank you so much for coming out on a Saturday we appreciate your time again we will be here uh, for a a few more minutes uh, but drive drive safe and thanks again
0: Thanks for listening to Studio 809, interesting, thoughtful, and relevant podcasts originating at the foot of Pike's Peak. Before you go, did you know you can rate and review our Studio 809 podcasts? That will help us because our egos really need to have thousands and thousands of listeners But that helps our wonderful sponsors reach more ears, too. And we do love our sponsors. So just go to Studio 809 or any individual 809 podcast in your iTunes or podcast app and click on Ratings and Reviews. Thanks.